Welcome to Currents, your leading global voice of maternal feminism. As maternal feminists, we are inviting you to join us, using our voices in the public square for the things that deeply matter, our faith, our families, and our maternal identities. The Currents podcast aims to gather women who are deliberate thinkers and women who are prepared to engage as powerful forces for good in our homes, our communities, and our world. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today for our Currents podcast. Joining me this morning is Susan Roylance, who's a dear friend and also probably one of the most expert people I know in standing up for the family at the highest level of society. She's been working on preserving family-centered language at the United Nations um, documents and all of the different um, outcome documents that come out of a lot of United Nations meetings. And she's been doing that for over 50 years. Susan, is that right? Yeah, it really is. Not not at the UN for over 50 years, probably 35 at the UN. But Now, okay, for our listeners um, joining us this morning, could you tell us a little bit about how you got started and your your call to do this work? Well, that's really hard to pinpoint how I got started because I really have been quite involved ever since I was young. And um, even in high school, I remember I got, I got the Betty Crocker Award from for something. And in, in filling it out and what my goals were, I included motherhood. And quite often nowadays, that's not, you know, that's not done. Uh, people don't, young women don't think about that. And and I guess probably I was very involved politically to start with. And the ERA became a big issue, the Equal Rights Amendment at that time, and abortion. And mm-hmm. I cared a lot about both of those issues. I cared about the ERA mostly because it would impact abortion. It would impact um, religious um, societies that had anything that was based on men. The whole concept of, of women being better than men, rising above men, taking away the men's place. All of that was kind of uh, beginning to be a big issue, in the, at least in the United States, probably in Europe as well, but at least in the United States. And I think it probably all came to really to a head in 1977 when the uh, women's conferences throughout the United States were held. And uh, Congress had passed a uh, a bill allowing individual state conferences in every state and then culminating in a conference in Houston where they were supposed to come up with what women wanted. They wanted one of the things they wanted was women's Congress. They wanted they felt like the men had been in charge too long and now the women needed to be well, you know, that was a that was kind of a uh a dream of theirs. It wasn't anything that could actually happen. But they really did believe it. Bella Abzug was the leader at that time. And prior to that Probably the thing that impacted in the United States at least a lot of what happened was um, Betty Friedan's book, The The Feminine Mystique. And I don't know how much you know about that. That's a long Mm -hmm. time ago. But it impacted, it really did impact women. Um, The the purpose was to show that women didn't feel fulfilled in the home. And so they needed to have something more. They needed to be able to express themselves. They needed to get better education. Uh, it, It was really meant to kind of represent the feelings of women that were unfulfilled. 
And so it really had an impact on our society. I do remember, though, that when we went to the conference in Houston, that Betty Friedan said that it had gone beyond what she had intended. It wasn't, it was, it had become the whole anti-family part of it. It was really not what she intended. But anyway, that's, that's kind of how it morphed. And the, the words, uh, negative stereo, negative stereotypes of women was used a lot. We see that still in language, but the, the point was to, they wanted to, to stop seeing women as just, just, they use that word, just mothers, but just to, to show them as doctors and lawyers and, and those kinds of things in children's, in children's books, in children's, uh, TV, in, in, there was really a concerted effort to move women into positions where they could change the image of women to children. And they right. have, they have, they really have. I mean, you, you don't yeah. see hardly anything now that's produced, uh, children's books or children's TV or anything that shows women as mothers. The whole concept of leave it to be their, leave it to beaver type of program doesn't exist anymore. You watch a program and it might have a family in a living room, but guess what? The mother's coming in with a briefcase and things like that. So the whole concept of motherhood was attacked. And that really did concern me. I, uh, it became a family issue. In fact, I remember one time I went to uh, the Vatican in Rome and I was involved in a, uh, a meeting of pro-family people. It was a follow-up of the Istanbul conference in, in uh, Turkey. and. I, I, my comment was that the family was being, uh, attacked. It wasn't just women. It wasn't just abortion. It was the whole family. And I remember, uh, one of the archbishops that spoke at that, that meeting he said, Susan is right. It's not just women. It's not just abortion. It's the family. And really at that time, they sort of changed uh, a lot of our pro family friends that were really anti-abortion mostly to start with that was their biggest issue and that was really their their main focus it kind of moved where now we're all more pro-family because it involves more than just the the woman's having a baby or not but the whole conference in in houston and the things that led up to it and the, throughout the united states i i became a uh the floor leader for the pro-family people in washington state and Originally, I said I didn't want to do it because I was politically active. And at that time, Democrats and Republicans were both had women who were pro-abortion and, and uh, pro-gay rights. And I mean, it wasn't the Republicans against the Democrats in those issues like it is today. And mm. so I, I really wasn't interested in being the floor leader because I was a vice chairman of the Central Committee at the time. And I said, I don't want to get involved because we have a hard enough time electing good people. And if I get involved, it'll create more. Well, anyway, the woman who asked me, she was a Catholic who asked me if I would be the floor leader. She said, please pray about it. <laughs> so, so when I did, I felt like I needed to get involved. And that's a whole long story. I don't know, need to get into that, except that throughout the United States, it was, many of the conferences were really awful. We got together and we had our own resolutions and we passed our resolutions, but we didn't get our people elected to go to, to Houston. I was the first alternate, but I wasn't a, an official member of the delegation from Washington and all of the other people and 10 specialists were sent at state 
uh, funded by the state, but I wasn't, we weren't, because they tried to get us out. Anyway, the thing I wanted to point out, it, it really was a lesbian conference throughout the United States. It was a big, big push on lesbianism. And when we got to the conference in Houston, in the in the main thing, there were these these balloons that were attached everywhere, and it says, we are everywhere. And in the big, uh, uh, not the stadium, but a, a big building beside, there were all these booths of how-to booths for lesbian. I, I won't. I, I want this to is a that. really fascinating history because I don't think that everyone, your activism, you know, spans decades. And so you've been able to see, you know, the genesis of the sexual revolution. Um, and you were participating there, you know, someone that had very conservative views on abortion, on, um, the family unit and, and the preservation of the family and motherhood and, so you have a, a completely different perspective that is hardly ever, you know, historically shared today. It's almost like there was nobody that opposed um, the ERA. You know, there was nobody that, that stood for these things in an educated way that was present and experienced it firsthand. So it's really fascinating to hear the history. And I think for listeners, this month we're talking about the family as a central unit of society and as a driving force for the sustainability of everything that we hold dear. It's the family is that cellular level of society. And if we don't preserve it, if we don't look favorably upon it, it's really hard to move forward in every aspect of society. And so it's really critical that we talk about in a big ocean women it's it's central to to who we are. We're women of faith. We're women of family, and we identify as mothers. So we're bringing these things to the forefront of discussion today. And we're so grateful to have Susan Roylance, an expert at every sense of the word, um, join us today. Susan, could you share with us the work that you're involved in now, and? Maybe put into context, what are some of the changes you've seen at the UN level regarding the family? So maybe in the very beginning of your activism and your involvement, and then how have things progressed and changed? What are some of the things that you're seeing? Well, when I went to the Fourth World Conference on Women in 1995, I won't say that there was a real anti-family attitude at that point. Because we did get some good language in that document in the platform for action, and it wasn't a, an extreme pushback like it is today. Um, but but it began at that point. In fact, I think actually I think our organization as a as family organizations uh, at the UN and pushing for good language has actually created at the UN, now it's a worldwide thing, it's not just at the UN, but I think it has created a bit of a separation uh, so that there's more anti-family things now, and now there's organizations uh, like the uh, Southern Poverty Poverty Law, what is it, Institute or whatever it is. I mean, they're really organized, and they've, they've really come out, and, and they're calling groups like United Families and, and Big Ocean and CFAM hate groups. That's what they're calling us, hate groups now. And so just the fact that we're for family 
for the natural family. And, and they don't like that word because natural means that a homosexual or a trans person are not natural. That, that they, and they believe, of course, they are, that that's, that's who they are. And so they're trying to express themselves. And so that's why they don't like us. I guess they could hate us is really about what it amounts to. We did have a strong pro gay, pro homosexual, pro, pro lesbian, uh, contingent at the UN back when I first went. There is, you know, that was, that's very strong. A lot of people think that, that it's more recent. It was very, very strong at that point, at that time. And that's really, what we were dealing with a lot was trying to be pro-family. But really, honestly, my position at the Fourth World Conference on Women was also pro-motherhood. We had a, when I finally decided to go, it's a long story and I don't think you have time for that, but when I finally decided to go, we decided to do a petition to Hillary Clinton because she was the head of the delegation for the U.S. to the Fourth World Conference. She wasn't the the leader of doing everything. However, many people say she wrote most of that document that's because of her her law degree. And that's very possible. But there were other very strong people. But uh, we did had a petition to her, to Hillary, people that signed up and wanted to have motherhood represented in the document. And we had a booth at the forum that was prior to the main conference where people could come and sign. We had a big long paper and people could, could sign and we were submitted that to the U.S. delegation. But people from all over the world came, and, and women would come, and they would just cry because they were so grateful that we were representing mothers and the importance of mothers. And we had a very nice booth. It was a was one of those things that came together. I'm, I'm sure God helped us from the very beginning. It was a very special thing that many of the, that we had CDs and different things from different people that we were able to give to people at that booth that had been donated. So it was, it was a really special thing, and we did get, some good language, not anywhere near what we wanted, but we had language that we wanted. But the interesting thing about that is at that conference, Bella Abzug, she had these, they were legal sized pieces of paper that listed the, the paragraphs and the language she wanted from previous conferences, the 90s, the conferences of the 90s, created a lot of the policy that we deal with now at the UN. And so she had those that language and she would show how it had been used before in other documents, even even treaties, in international treaties, to bring it forth into the Fourth World Conference on Women. Well, she was effective and she got a lot of things in because she was so organized. And that was what inspired me to eventually do the UN negotiating guide because as we then went to Turkey and we had the Fourth World Con- or the the Habitat Two and then others, I, I realized that we needed to, to keep track of the good language because there is a lot of good language in, in the international documents and in, in the conference, even the conference documents, there's something that's there. And we tended to be uh, reactive. The, the pro family people tended to just be reactive and we just opposed to things, but we weren't putting forth good things. And so that was, that's kind of been my, um, the thing that I've contributed or tried to contribute is bringing together the good language and getting it into the hands of the people who would do something about it. Now, that doesn't mean that necessarily, sometimes it was the U.S. under Bush, the U.S. Uh, delegation was very good, but under a lot of the other Democrat leaderships of the United States. And I mean, it's just a fact of life. They were a lot more pushy of these other issues than the, than the Republicans were. So when a Republican president was in, we were able to do more on the pro-family. So I collected these, and we went through several. Five. That, that's a huge contribution, might I add. 
It's amazing. It's like the Bible of language that everybody uses in creating um, these critical outcome, global outcome documents that then become international soft law that trickle down and impact us at the national level. So it's really amazing that we've been able to do this. Probably one of the greatest advantages of that book is the index, because I have all of these major documents in there, because a lot of times we would take pieces of document and, and, and promote it for policy, and they'd say, oh, well, it, you know, you don't have the whole thing. So that really inspired putting a book together that had those major documents in it and then indexed it so that we could find the language and we could see the full context and those who were negotiating. And, and you, you refer to it as a Bible for the pro-family people. Well, the del- the leader of the, when uh, George Bush came in, no, it might even have been, anyway, uh, it was, when he came in, his leader of the delegation said that that was their Bible. That's what she said, that that was their <laughs> Bible that they used in, in negotiating. And it's kind of heavy when we finally got it into the internet. I mean, so that it could, they could reach it. It was much better, but they, it was heavily used. And, but interestingly, just from a, a kind of a final perspective on my involvement at the UN, you know, we were always talking about poverty and what you could do about poverty and, and the developing countries, how to help the developing countries, et cetera, et cetera. And I got so tired of talking about poverty and doing nothing that actually when I finished the negotiating guide in 2000, I said, okay, you guys, you've got this. I'm going to go try and do something about poverty. And that's when my husband and I went to Africa. And I had I had gone to Africa for some of the for the prep comms for Habitat, the second Habitat coming around, and got acquainted with people and became more acquainted with the, the situations. And so we decided to become involved, particularly in the AIDS issues for children, uh, the abort, the adoption issues and, and things like that. So I moved out of the policy realm at that point and did more of how does the policy affect the people and, and what can we do as a, as a people. So I've, I've been at the UN and I continued to be at the UN off and on, but I've been more involved in humanitarian issues since then. That's wonderful. Yesterday we were texting back and forth and I thought that this, this word is something that is really important to share with others. It's the feminization of poverty and what happens when when fathers aren't present and aren't providing for their families in a in a way that supports the family it turns into the feminization of poverty where it's women led households carrying the burden of everything upon their shoulders and you see this a lot throughout the world where the men are involved just in the baby making part um, and then they skip out and I think that it's really important if we're even going to begin talking about poverty and the feminization of poverty that we talk about you know the second half of our population which is men and fathers and we interviewed Al Pooley from the Native American Fatherhood and Families Association recently, and that was a big discussion point where we were talking about the important role of fathers and men in our lives. That was last month, and now this month we're talking about the family. And so it's such a critical point to make that men are part of the solution as well, you know, that men and women working together 
for the benefit of their children and their future posterity, how everyone has some kind of a contributing role, um, that they need to be present, that they need to be engaged, that they need to be aware that their absence is really felt, not just at the very local level, but at a national and international level, what happens when the family unit breaks down. It's critical. The feminization of poverty is a huge thing. And there's, man, uh, so much scientific research that shows that an intact family is the best thing for a child. I mean, there's so many measurements that show that the child does better if, if they're in a home with their biological parents, their father and their mother. And I think that we have, because of the whole feminist movement, we have devalued the value of fathers. and. Fathers are critical to a functioning family. If, if you care about poverty at all, fathers are the solution. We need to have fathers involved in helping to provide. You know, actually, mothers are going to have children, and they're the ones that are going to take care of the children if the men leave. It's just kind of a fact of life, and they may be extremely poor in the process. The, the role of men together with women is to, is to provide and, and provide safety and to support the mother. I think I think it's interesting in all of this feminization thing that we don't recognize that the mother and motherhood is important because men can't be mothers. Well, they're trying, but they that's a whole other subject. <laughs> men cannot produce babies like women can. And so that's always going to be the role of the mother. But the mother needs the father. And so that's the family. And that's where we get into the family issue. But I noticed even... This just this last week they were talking about things at the UN and they want to focus on the women and the children. Focus on the women and the children. Always they want to focus on the women and the children. Well, that's great, but if you only focus on the women and children, you leave out the part of the family that makes it function, that makes it work, that makes it that's the best for the children. And I think as pro family people, we need to be more armed with scientific information that shows. There's just ample data to show that without the biological mother and family, uh, father in the family, the children are not going to receive the kind of help they need in their growing up process. I, I completely agree. And I, I see, I see the value and the presence of good men in the lives of their children and them striving to be good partners and husbands. And, you know, I think that it's such a beautiful, thing to witness generationally that little boys can look up to their fathers and to see you know the things that they're doing well and then the things that they can then improve on into the future and and hopefully society just improves generation upon generation and and really i've seen i think socially we're seeing a comeback of this male voice trying to raise up other men and be there for them um to show them the way and, you know, like the Jordan Petersons and um, other men just really being vulnerable and speaking out about the burdens and, and feeling, you know, society viewing them as being useless. You know, I think that they're becoming more vocal about that. And I think that's really important. So there have been some people that have made comments that some of the world's greatest abuses happen within the walls of the home that especially at the UN, um, I've heard this several times um, where, you know, the greatest trauma, the greatest abuse 
happens in the home and that because of that, it's an outdated institution. It needs to go. It's an institution that's holding women back from true progress. Um, what would you say to people making those kind of arguments, you know, that the family is, is a place of trauma and that it needs to go? Well, for starters, I have to tell you that I remember one time when I was at the UN and it was a room filled with the leaders of the anti-family movement, I guess you'd say, that were really pushing things. They were, they were high placed people that were in positions of being able to do things at the UN. And I looked around that room and I realized that those women didn't know what a good family was. And they were, they were the results of a dysfunctional family. And so they had become this anti-family people because they believed that families were not good. Now, what's the solution? What's the, what's the replacement that they want? There, there isn't a replacement that's better. What you need to do is have strong families, good families. We need to work for that. But that's part of the problem is a lot of the people who have been leaders in this movement against the family really didn't have a good functional family. So they don't have a good point to go from to understand what a good family can be like. So those of us who do, you know, a lot of times the reason that pro-family people who are who are very supportive of, of pro-family, they're, they're home. They're taking care of their families. They're doing things with their families. So they're not as involved in some of these political things or, and the UN type things as those who are anti-family. And, and this whole movement of anti-family people in the, in the homosexual community has developed, has become so huge and they don't have families generally. There's a few that do, but by and large, they don't have families and their whole, their whole uh, life is pushed into this trying to promote their way of life and to promote the anti-family, the movement. And so there's a huge, there's a huge uh, movement that we have to deal with that makes it very difficult and they become very active politically. And so you have, you have very strong people who become very expert at being uh, political advocates and who are pushing their point of view, the whole sexual revolution point of view, which, oh my goodness, it's just becoming so, I, I would have never believed lately, you know, you even see things where they're pushing that pedophilia, pedophilia is okay. Things that, you know, you would just never have even con have any concept that these kinds of things could become normal or could be accepted. And yet it's part of this movement that is anti-family. Family people, they care about children. They care about mothers and fathers and the things within the family that are good for children. The whole concept of what is good for children and what will help them to become uh, strong, participating, contributing members of society has been pushed aside. Well, now it's so interesting for me, clear back from 1995, which is a long ways now. It has just happened quite fast. But when you think then, of where we were and, and how families are were considered at that point and today, how little they are considered. It's just it just boggles your mind to see what's happened in our society to change the whole focus of, of many things in society. So discussions like these are very important. It's important. I think the biggest thing that's important is to help girls, young girls, 
understand the importance of motherhood. I always wanted to be a mother. Nowadays, you don't hear young girls talking about wanting to be mothers and what it, what it takes to be a, a mother, to be prepared. And, and it's wonderful to prepare for a career. I, I, I'm for everything that women want to be and can be. And many of them who don't get married, it's important that they have something that they enjoy doing that contributes, that they, you know, they feel fulfilled. But we have countries now who have such a severe deficiency in the number of children, children that are being born and that their society is decreasing. I read that Russia is even going in and getting the children in the orphanages in Ukraine and taking them to Russia, making them Russian citizens. They, they, need, they need children to be able to have a society that works. You can't have a society without workers that, that's economically successful. And, and most of our European countries that at the time that I started at the UN, you know, they were the big, well, they still are the big pushers of, of uh, population control, trying to control population. Well, yeah, they've, they've done it. <laughs> they've, and and what, what happens is that once you convince women that they shouldn't be mothers, you don't like to go back to being a mother. It's not easy to be a mother. You have to desire to be a mother and be willing to deal with the things that come with motherhood when you're raising children. Once, once a woman has moved out of that, it's really hard to get them to move back. And in fact, I was reading one thing, the women said, well, yeah, now they want to promote motherhood, but now we're, we, we're not motherhood age anymore. The people, the women that have been convinced that they shouldn't be mothers, they should go for other things. And so that's really up in our whole society. And it's really at the root of it all, in my opinion. That, that's where the root is, is what do women do and what, how do women help to prepare for the future? Because it's women that produce the children. I think that's so interesting. Um, and you're right, we don't talk about this enough. I think that everything's become so politically correct where, where we can't talk about the facts. You know, the nations demographically are in a massive decline and there's no way back that we've got entire communities that are uninhabited like homes people are just moving away from places because there's no youth there's no children um and you have to talk we have to talk about these issues and it really is interesting i talked about population control and how the family unit as far as i've really delved into it as as a functioning unit that is healthy and thriving it is that protective layer that preserves free will, that preserves individuality, that preserves the innate dignity of, of children in their wholeness, you know, and it can grow them into the most healthy um, self. And, um, but there is the reality of trauma. There is a reality of abuse that happens in home. And part of that's because of the whole pornography problem. Women are, are beginning to be, well, they've always been a, a, a sexual, uh, can be seen as a sexual participant. I don't know how to say that, but if that's always been so, but the pornography issue has turned women into a sexual object more than it used to be. It's pornography is so, pornography is so uh, available now everywhere. I, everybody has a phone and it's just so easy to be able to access it. And, and that's causing, I really think that's the root of a lot of the violence in homes, that there isn't, there isn't this match of loving uh, mother and father. There used to be, it's, it's two people that live in the same home and have 
they have desires and sometimes those desires are not good and, and they get upset with the other one. And it's a, it's not, it's an amazing, it's, it's terrible. I think that it's terrible. And there's so many factors and layers that feed into that. But I think what I've boiled things down to is that there, what else do we have? you know, and that it's worth saving. The family unit is worth saving. It's worth investing in. It's worth talking about. It's worth, you know, it's like that proverbial throwing the baby out with the bathwater, literally. Like we can't do that because it's all we have, you know, unless we have plans to create babies in a vat in some laboratory, which, I mean, those discussions are being had. (laughs) It's going to be worse than ever. well, and the thing is that, you know, if, if we go down an alternative route, then women are completely optional. Um, creating human civilizations is the greatest power that there exists. It, it's all centered around that, and we hold that power. And I don't think that very many women stop and recognize the depth and the magnitude of our power. And the fact that That's we... That's so true. I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, because what else is there? And then if the other thing, the other road is taken, let's say we create babies and through science and technology and it becomes the work of science, then women are completely eliminated and our contribution and our power is completely axed. And so I think that if we stop, slow down and and just look at things very matter-of-factly that we hold within our bodies the capacity to create human life and not just that but as mothers when we fully embrace our motherhood we get to influence that life we get yeah. to pass along our values and our um that's way the of bigger looking part at the world yeah that's the that's bigger huge part. yes it's the bigger part and if we do that jointly you know yoked to a partner, a husband, a father that that equally values our contribution and that we can value theirs, we've got something impenetrable. We have um, a force field around us and that we can really do amazing things. And I think that that's the message I'd love for listeners to hear that um, the family is worth protecting, it's worth saving, it's worth rescuing, it's worth preserving. And it's worth having these difficult conversations, you know, that have been really shoved into the corner and anybody wanting to have these conversations feel like they have to hide, you know, any questions that they're having or, or really looking at things. And, and I feel like healthy dialogue in a society is what's going to save us is that we can hash these things out and have conversations without feeling ashamed for bringing these issues up. I think that's really our, our saving grace that we need to have more and more and more of these conversations. And, and without um, demonizing one another um, and without immediately just having these vitriolic reactions, you know, that, that we're hate groups or that we're this or we're th- that we're that. I think that there are uh, lots of other perspectives that are worth listening to. Um, but ours is really important as well. And, it, it, you know, conversations like this and the things that you've had to say, Susan, I think many listeners might have a knee-jerk reaction to say, oh, my goodness, she's saying this and that and would immediately judge. But you've been around for over 50 years. 
involved in the political arena and the policymaking arena and the humanitarian arena, you have a wealth of experience that is worth listening to and, you know, and giving grace to. I think a lot of people would be eager to take certain comments out of context. Um, yes, but I know about that. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that when we give each other grace and really try to listen um, and, and that there are many lived experiences that have testified to the things that you're saying, that you've seen, that you've been involved in, that it adds a whole other level of expertise that is worth our while to listen to. I would like to add that I think it's really important that we're positive. I think it's, I, I, my, my motto is when I go to the UN, I want to be a light on the hill. I don't, I don't like to go and be a, a, a rabid person against certain things. Yeah, there's things we want to be against, but that's why I found the good language because we need to be for something. We're mothers of boys as well as girls also. And we have a real impact on raising the boys of the future. So that whole, that whole idea of we need to be opposed to all of these things that are happening isn't going to get us anywhere because we, it's what we need to right. be is we need to be promoting the good things and we need to be an example. And so people like you, Carolina, are such a wonderful and your mother and, and all of the big ocean women, I just love your wonderful attitude about motherhood and about the family, not just, not just uh, promoting women, but promoting the, the wonderful role that women have in society. And it's, and I'm not against women being great uh, in their careers as well. They have, that's wonderful. We live in a time when you can do all of these different things, even the focus on what do we do with children? Some countries are trying very hard to figure out what they do with the children. Some of them want to build a lot of of places for children to be housed, to have daycares and that kind of thing. Some, some governments actually are trying to think about helping the women to stay at home and take care of the children because they recognize that as an important part of their future of their country. So those are the kind of things we need to pour. I had this conversation yesterday, actually, in a congregation of, um, you know, 19 to 30 year olds um, spoke to the men and the women there. Um, about gender roles and about, you know, these are touchy subjects today because there's just so much out there that is, you know, that's confusing to people that, you know, do I want to have this future where I, I want to raise a family or do I want to go and pursue my education career? And to that, I, I really, it was a beautiful recognition that I, a realization that I had just as I was presenting and sharing with this young group, um, that as individuals, as human beings, we have God-given gifts, talents, capacities, inclinations, skills, talents, whatever that is, that it comes from within. And when we're able to fulfill that, to bless other people, um, and the people that we can have the most impact is in our family, and we all belong to a family, um, that when we can use those gifts and talents to bless others, that we find more meaning and purpose in life and that our leadership capacity grows and our, you know, ability to add upon with other gifts and talents, it amplifies and grows as well. And the meaning and the purpose grows. And so it becomes this beautiful feedback loop, back loop that the more you give, the more you receive, 
And I think that as a society in general, we've stepped away from that. And people are really hyper-focused on on categorizing things. You know, in my household, there are a lot of perhaps more male-gendered responsibilities that I take, you know, and that my husband has some more female, quote-unquote, nurturing capacities that he does. But we just work as a team, given the, you know, situation, um, given the time frame, given the, the skills and aptitudes that we have. And so we become a complete team. And I think that there are biological inclinations, just the mere fact that it's women that have the babies and that it's more efficient that we nurse the babies, that we raise the babies when they're young and that we have that kind of a nurturing care giving role because of the biological, you know, that those things completely overlap at some point in um, in the early phases. But then as we develop, and I'm going to also say that all of the leadership that I now have in being the director of Big Ocean Women, running teams, all of that originated within the realm of my home. I learned leadership through motherhood. And I think that it's really important for young women to understand that, that they're is tremendous, you know, leadership experience that you have in organizing a home and getting people where they need to go and stretching yourself to fill needs within the home. And it just, all of those gifts and talents that you can um, create in creating a home, you can expand that as far as you want into the world. And so it doesn't have to be this either or. Either I am this stay at home, white picket fence, you know, the whole feminine mystique and and what was trying to be represented. Women are completely unfulfilled. No, it's just an an extension. You have to allow that to extend to keep influencing into the other spheres of influence that you have. And, um, And I wish that young men and young women could realize that, that there's true partnership um, in creating a family, that there are things that you will be inclined to do and that your spouse, your, your partner will be inclined to do and vice versa. And that you, tag team things, you know, that it's it's like offense and defense. And that the best teams can both do offense and defense together and as as the game plays out that you you support and back each other up in whatever needs to be done. And I see that a lot in your husband and in the family that you've raised. That you guys do a lot together. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. People think if you've had seven children I'm sure you know about that also that, you know, you can't possibly be doing something else. <laughs> that's not, and that's not true. And especially if you have a supportive husband, my husband, you know, there's times when he hasn't been all that sure about some of the things I'm doing because it takes a lot of time, but I try never to go beyond what he's comfortable with and what he also supports. So, and we have, I mean, I can go back and see that there's, I've done a lot of things in my life. I was a congressional candidate in Washington state and I've owned my own business and I've done a lot of other things that I can go back and I can see, oh, I don't know if that was such a good idea at the time because there's things that may have happened with my children that, that were not the best. So although my children are all doing well and, and I'm very grateful for that, it is true that you can move your time away from your family and sometimes you then have to deal with the consequences. So it's that's what we don't realize in our society. We, we don't even have any concept of the fact that there's something you're giving up sometimes. I remember back uh, at, at the Fourth World Conference on Women, prep comms, when they were talking about how men should help with the children. And it really has become an acceptable thing in our society that men become more involved with their children. And that's wonderful. That part has been good. 
uh, because they laughed about it at the UN. They laughed about the fact that they were trying to promote men helping out with the children, etc. So it's a it's a combined thing. It, it it really is important that we recognize what men can do to help mothers with the children. And that culture is developed, and it's it expands into the community. People start to look at that family, like you said, as a light on the hill. And other people say, well, we can talk kindly to each other that way as well. And we can, you know, be kind and tender to one another in the home that way as well. And um, I know I've been impacted by example families in my life. And it's made me want to be an example family. We have a long ways to go. And we've done a lot of things wrong. And we've made many, many mistakes. But it's still worth wanting to improve. And I think that maybe can be a, a takeaway message to any listeners out there. That um, just stay, take a step back. That no family, no family is perfect. But truly, we shouldn't give up on families. We shouldn't give up on our families. That we should, you know, always be seeking together with, you know, divinity in our lives. How we can improve upon and strengthen the families that we have. And everybody comes from a family. That's just a fact. No one is an island. Um, no one was just spawned into the, you know, earth magically. Um, everyone is begotten of a woman and, uh, and a man. And that, that, that connection brought us into this world and that we have something, um, we owe something to that. I think that we, we have the responsibility to, um, improve generation upon generation of what that looks like. And um, I hope that more and more people are up for the challenge. I think that that would be, it would be a revolutionary thing if everybody decided, you know, hey, I really want to, want to improve my family. I really want to make the most of this. I think your comment, we're all part of families, is really true. And even our brothers and sisters, everything about families is really what makes the society move forward. I know in China now they've recognized how wrong they've been. And now they're trying to push women into being mothers, and which is just the opposite of what it was back when I first got involved as far as China goes. With all this great population, now they can see that they have a real problem. It's Being a light on the hill is the first place. That's really all of us, no matter whether we get involved politically or go to the UN or whatever in policy making. The most important thing you can do is to have a very strong, unified, working family. And none of us are perfect, but if you don't focus on your family, then you're likely to have problems. Families are, are fragile. They are also the greatest thing that can possibly happen to help us to be able to be a strong society a strong nation a strong world that's the that's the most important thing we can do and as we recognize that and work towards it that'll make all the difference even in our own little sphere every family is important to to contribute to the total susan in closing i just wanted to thank you so much for all of the hard work that you've done um through the many many years of your involvement um in standing for the family um it's not easy and you You've done it beautifully, and you've raised an amazing family yourself. And so you're just an example in every sense of the word, and we're so grateful for you. You have been listening to Currents, a podcast by Big Ocean Women. You can find us on the internet at bigoceanwomen.org, 
on Instagram, and on Facebook. We are each one powerful drop in a big ocean of change. Join us in one of our local chapters, Waves, or Women Achieving Vast Empowerment. Our music is First Rain by Ian Post. Editing and production is by Fifth East Productions. Please join us again next week for in-depth discussion about interesting ideas and about people who are trying to make a difference in their communities. <laughs>